0: Welcome back, friends. This is the Reverend Mary Vano, and I want to welcome you to JOY, a podcast from St. Margaret's Episcopal Church in Little Rock, Arkansas, where our conversations about life and faith always include Jesus, others, and you. Today, my guest is Jennifer O'Brien, author of The Hospice Doctor's Widow, a journal. Jennifer's career has been as an educator and administrator in the medical field, she was married to Dr. Bob Limberg, a physician who cared for hospice patients. After Bob was diagnosed with a stage four metastatic cancer, Jennifer became his caregiver and documented their journey through diagnosis, treatments, caregiving, and death. Her art journal is a combination of Bob's wisdom and perspective as a hospice physician and her honest and beautiful reflections as a spouse and caregiver. Now known as the hospice doctor's widow, Jennifer is sharing the wisdom gained through her book, her website, and numerous speaking engagements. And so we're really glad to have you here today, Jennifer. It's really a true honor. Thank you for joining us.
1: Well, the honor is all mine. Thank you for having me.
0: So I would love to hear a little bit about your story. I don't think anybody plans to become an expert on caregiving and death. What brought you here? How did you get here?
1: So it actually goes back pretty far. When I was 18, my only sibling, David, who was 13 at the time, was in a motor vehicle accident and died three weeks later. That was 40 years ago. I know that it shaped me in all kinds of ways that I didn't necessarily see at the time. I didn't necessarily see as they were happening. My mother died 20 years later of pancreatic cancer. I was her caregiver from the point of diagnosis till her death, which was five weeks. And so when I met Bob Limberg, and he was a palliative care and hospice physician, there were many things about him that I fell in love with instantly. Mm -hmm. But one of them was that because I knew how important the work he was doing was to people like me who were currently going through caring for and then ultimately losing a person they love. It was a real head turner for me that he, and for anybody listening who knew him, he was a plastic surgeon here in Little Rock first, but residual pain from a neck injury many years prior made it impossible for him to operate. And so he couldn't operate anymore. And he decided to retrain in hospice and palliative medicine. And I didn't meet him until after he had started that second career. And I've been in healthcare for 35 years myself, and worked with a lot of surgeons who I can take or leave on any given day, but a (laughs) surgeon who really could have retired, but chose to retrain in hospice and palliative medicine, that was something else as far as I was concerned. That alone made him quite special. On top of that, of course, he was cute and funny and all that stuff that you fall in love with.
0: Good stuff. That sounds so interesting to me because I imagine, of course, a plastic surgeon has to have highly technical skills and a palliative care and hospice doctor needs medical skills, but also a certain bedside manner. Were there characteristics about Bob that made him especially good in that role? Yeah, Bob had
1: gone through a lot of realization, self-actualization, a lot of therapy, a lot of Mm. guidance. I think he was always quite good at the bedside manner thing. I've met patients of his from his plastic surgery days who sing his praises in that way, that he had a great bedside manner. And of course, plastic surgery these days is erroneously sort of synonymous with cosmetic surgery. And while Bob was an excellent cosmetic surgeon, he did a lot of breast reconstruction after cancer, burns, you know, so he had a pretty evolved bedside manner, I think from the start. I mean, I say that I didn't know him back then, but I believe he did. And then I believe that a lot of the work he did on himself, especially as he transitioned from plastic surgery to palliative care, yes, I think helped him a lot. Interestingly, he had not lost anyone to death that was close to him, except for his parents, and they both lived to their 90s. So all of his experience with end of life was professional, and all of mine was personal. And I think he drew on my experience. We sat around the dinner table many nights and talked about mm-hmm. you know families that he was working with, and I would give him some ideas of what might be happening having been on that. He lost his parents, like I said, they lived till into their 90s, and he wasn't all that close with them, right? It wasn't the same kind of loss that some of his patients' families were going through.
0: He sounds like a wonderful person.
1: He really was.
0: One of the things that you sometimes talk about is precious time, and you capitalize it capital P, capital T, precious time. I love that idea. What is precious time?
1: I thought maybe I would start by reading page three Mm -hmm. of my journal, and then we can talk about it. Precious time. He has helped families understand by telling them they were into precious time, meaning death is likely, if not imminent. Precious time is when you say what you need to say and you don't say what you will later regret. Now it is us, we are into precious time. He is going to die of this disease and I will go on and have to live with how I handled our precious time. This was a term that Bob used to tell families and patients that the patient was dying. And I think it worked really well, because it's a kind, lovely way of saying something that is really difficult to say. You know, put the emphasis on the word precious. And when I first was getting to know him, I thought that was because he was Southern. Southerners say insurance and umbrella. And I thought, oh, that's just this twang he has. I'm like, no, that's, that's not at all. It is the type of time. It is the time that comes at the end of someone's life. It's a gift to be told you're into precious time, because for those of us who go on after we lose a loved one, I think there's often this regret. I thought we had more time. I thought I would be able to tell him this, because nobody is willing to say, your person is dying. And this was Bob's way of telling families, your person is dying. They understood what he was saying, but it was easier for him to say it and it was easier for them to hear it. So that's what precious time is. And in our case, he lived for 22 months after his diagnosis. Well, because he had coined the term precious time and we had spoken of it many, many times. It's page three, right? It's like it's at the beginning of the journal. So I'm not entirely sure that he ever told a family 22 months ahead of time that they were into precious time, but that's how it went for us. I knew he Mm -hmm. was going to die of the disease or of some complication from the treatments or so forth. And so I knew we were into precious time. I suspect that he never told a family quite that far in advance, you're into precious time. That was the term he used. And it's an important one. And I am really pleased to say that the journal and then some other speaking and things that I've done over the last three years, the term is being used much more widely in healthcare now. It's been written about by some real mavens in the field and people are gaining the advantage of that terminology because it's really helping them communicate with patients and families. To me and to Bob, greater than the tragedy of telling, or the pain of telling someone your loved one is dying, or you are dying, was the idea that there would be significant regret after a death because a person didn't realize that someone they loved was dying. Precious time is an important term. I think it's useful elsewhere other than just healthcare, but it's a good acknowledgement this doesn't go on forever and you won't get a dress rehearsal you know, in the very end and you'll live with how you handle that time for the rest of your life for those of us who survive it.
0: Terminology precious time, I think it's helpful because it brings attention to the present moment when you get that diagnosis, and it's a terminal diagnosis, your thoughts and your worries and it's easy to put all of your energy into that thought of separation and loss that's going to happen. But precious time. It's a reminder to patient and caregivers, loved ones. It's a reminder to everyone that the time is now. The time is now for love. The time is now for forgiveness. The time is now for reconciliation, for saying the important things. This is precious time. The truth is all time is precious. And, you know, most of us don't get to know, or a lot of us anyway, may not know exactly when we're going to die. Some of us will die suddenly. We won't have the gift of that diagnosis that says, this is the last chapter. How are you going to bring it to conclusion? So in some sense, I think it's not a bad idea to think about all time as precious, but it can be a gift that comes with a diagnosis like this to think, okay, now we're into precious time. I like it very much. One of the things that I am always hoping for people is the opportunity for a good death. We're all going to die. Most of us don't have very much control over how we are going to die. But sometimes we get an opportunity to create a good death. What do you think a good death looks like?
1: So just backing up a little bit, I would say that most of us actually do have the opportunity to direct a good death for ourselves. Four out of five of us will die following an illness or of old age. Only one in five will die suddenly. So we know that. And we know it's ahead. What's happened in our society is that we don't want to talk about it. We don't want to think about it. We've made death into just the enemy. And so we don't prepare. But the truth is, we all have the chance to prepare. The ultimate question you asked me was about a good death. And I think it's worth turning it around. There are certain factors that we don't have control over. Not unlike a good birth. We spend at least 40 weeks preparing for a good birth. Sometimes longer, right? Sometimes people start naming their children long before they are impregnated. And sometimes we find out we're pregnant a little bit later. So it's not quite 40 weeks, but it's, you know, 30 weeks. We read some books, baby shower. We go to the obstetrician or the midwife Uh once a month and then once every two weeks and then once a week. We have ultrasounds and choose names and we hire doulas and all sorts of things to tee up the best possible birth. Of course, there are factors that are out of our control, but we tee it up. We have conversations with the obstetrician or midwife, right? About this and that, and these types of methods or this epidural or whatever, all these things. We have these pre-conversations so that when the time comes, you can change your mind. Up until a certain point about, let's say, epidural or whatever. But when the time comes and I need your decision, do you want this? Do you not want this? We have already rehearsed things enough. We've already talked things through enough that you're going to give an answer you feel good about in the moment. The reason I bring up the birth example is because for two reasons, actually. One is what I just mentioned about some things being, yes, outside of our control, but so many things are within our ability to plan and prepare. Same with death. Absolutely no difference with end of life, that there are many, many aspects of it that are totally within our control. And the second reason I bring up birth as an analogy is because it's so personal, right? What makes a good birth is entirely personal to the parents, to the mother specifically. That's the same thing with death. We have this Hollywood vision of death, which is that it's quiet and that the person is surrounded by people who love them. But the truth is it's nothing like we see in the movies or on soap operas. And that there's a good percentage of people who really want to slip away when no one's in the room with them. They don't want to be surrounded by loved ones. We have people who are going to want to hear certain music. There are so many personalized things about end of life, just as there are about a birth and the ability to plan and prepare is there. So a good death, you know, the question is, what is your good death? Talk about it with the people you love, because there will be a point, assuming you are the four out of five who dies of illness or old age, There will be a point where you lose your agency, right? You simply Mm -hmm. won't be able to communicate certain things as you die. And so you have spoken with someone thoroughly and you have documented what it is you want, what will make a good death for you.
0: unique to the individuals. A good death is a lot about people's expectations and desires and how we can meet those. Planning ahead really helps. I'm a big proponent of hospice care, actually. I've been an ordained priest in the Episcopal Church for 20 years, which means at this point I've done countless funerals and worked with many families around the time of death some of those have been harder than others. I'd say the hardest ones are when family members are at odds with one another. That's really hard. And I think that that is often, not always, but it's often something that with some intention can be worked through, especially when family members are really struggling because they have different ideas about what their loved one wanted. So if you have ideas about your death, about your family, about your funeral, make a plan and write it down.
1: (laughs) Absolutely. And it brings such comfort. There are maybe siblings of a parent who dies and then they argue about, no, 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 no. Mama would want this. No, she would want this. Well, if mama would just have a few conversations and then document, And I think the documentation is super important. Certainly there are legal elements to documentation, but also because having now been through it with every single person in my immediate family, plus my husband, Mm -hmm. I can tell you that your brain doesn't quite work as clearly when you are going through that transition caregiver to griever or anticipatory grief or whatever it is that element of that loss that's coming up for you. And so if it's not going smoothly, if your brain isn't working 100% for you, you know, it isn't working that way for your sister or your brother or whomever, right? Yeah. If it's written down, man, it's just a gift. It's an absolute gift to loved ones. I see this on the internet all the time, this hashtag family first, and I love it, but I wish that people would recognize family first up until and beyond my last breath. I want people to put their family first. And family, of course, we're using that term loosely, that you are giving your family the gift of knowing exactly what you want up until your last breath and beyond it. And you are giving that to them clearly so that there isn't any arguing among family members about what mom or daddy would have wanted.
0: So for a lot of reasons, I think hospice is frequently a good choice because they're really good at helping people make some of the decisions that need to be made.
1: I am a huge believer in hospice, but Mm -hmm. I would also say all of this needs to be done well in advance. One of the reasons Bob and my situation went as smoothly as it did was because we had had numerous conversations around the dinner table or whatever about what we each wanted in our own death before anybody got sick. Those provided these incredible touchstones when Bob did get sick. Because let me tell you something, something, the stuff goes sideways when someone gets a diagnosis. All of a sudden, it is just so much easier to be able to draw on conversations that were had in the abstract or documentation that was made in the abstract. Again, you can change your mind down the road. You can say, you know, I said I didn't want this treatment. I want to start this treatment. You can always change your mind. But have those conversations around the dinner table once your kids get to be 18. I think it's fair game.
0: In the Book of Common Prayer for the Episcopal Church, there is a rubric, just a little notation for heads of congregation. And it says a priest in a parish needs to, from time to time, remind the congregation of the importance of making a will. The interesting thing to me that I find because I'm a prayer book nerd is that that notation is found in the prayer book right after the prayers for the Thanksgiving of the birth of a child. Basically, if you have any worldly goods at all, if you have a family, I mean, really anybody and everybody should have this planning done, especially we need to be good stewards of our temporal goods, knowing that we're not taking any of it with us.
1: We're going to say that the will with a lowercase w is encompassing of a lot of material, not just what's happening to your Yadro collection or whatever, you know,
0: whatever. (laughs) Well, Jennifer, I think that the perspective that you bring to this conversation is especially helpful also for caregivers. And I found it interesting that you've actually created a job description for caregivers, which I just think that's notable because a lot of people don't realize what it's like to be a family member caring for a loved one who is sick or dying. That's a job that doesn't come with a job description usually and no pay, but you've made a job description. So what do you want caregivers to know about this very special job?
1: I've been in healthcare on the administrative side for 35 years. And after the book came out, I started to think about You know, I've been advocating for family caregivers. This is strictly family caregivers, not professional caregivers. And I started to think about what if I had to hire for this position? What would that position description look like? I started creating this thing. It is free on my website. So anyone can go to the resources page of my website and download this position description. And I really recommend that you do if you are a family caregiver or you know a family caregiver. Or if you're a professional caregiver, because professional caregivers have no idea what we as family caregivers do. In fact, I ran the draft by a couple of nurses and they said, no, 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 family caregivers don't give intramuscular injections. Oh, yes, they do. Mm -hmm. And so that was really fascinating to see what professional caregivers don't understand about what they're asking family caregivers to do. I also highly recommend looking at it as a family caregiver so that you can see the full scope of what you're doing and that if at any point when your person dies or someone else is going to come in as the primary family caregiver and you're going to maybe need to get a job, that you have something that describes what you've been doing that will help you with, you know, your resume. It's not a certification. But it does give you some language to help you with communicating about what family caregiving is all about to, say, someone who's in a position to hire you for a professional position of some sort. It's a big one. It is a huge job. I was stunned. When it finally all came together, I got some help from a best friend from fourth grade who is a pediatrician. And about five years ago, one of her sons was in a bad skiing accident and was rendered a quadriplegic. And so she is a family caregiver to him and she's a professional caregiver in her career. She lent a lot of guidance to that document as well. So it's worth the free download.
0: I think it's really useful to know a little bit about what family caregivers do I think it's also helpful for family caregivers to feel seen. If I'm finding this overwhelming, that's okay, because it is overwhelming. It is a lot.
1: big jobs. I have spoken to an audience of 1500. I have done an acquisition due diligence in 88 days. I have led big organizations, they have done big positive change for those big organizations, huge jobs. By far, family caregiver was the hardest job I've ever done. And the greatest honor. No question about it. And yet it is entirely unsung in our society. But family caregivers, depending on how you read the statistics, one in four adults, is a family caregiver in this country. Three out of five of them are women. The average duration is 4.9 years. These are important factors. And I firmly believe that family caregivers are basically this unseen structure that holds up our society. They're so great in number and the work is so profound that without it, I'm not sure our society would hold up.
0: So how do we support family caregivers?
1: The chances are really good that you know one or Uh several. There's a page in my journal that says our best friends in this are the ones who check in frequently, usually by text, with no expectation of a response. So that's my thing. Don't give up on us. We may not write back. Text us. I frequently text both caregivers and grievers a heart, the little bouquet emoji, (laughs) something that just says, I am thinking of you. And I have no expectation that I will hear back from that person because that's not what this is about. This is about me saying, I haven't forgotten you. I know you're there. And if you could do that for your friends and relations who are in that heavy duty caregiver role, that would be great. Let me know if there's anything I can do to help is a complete waste of your breath as a caregiver or a griever for that matter. I am never going to tell you how you can help me. I'm not going to do it. It puts the onus on me and it's just not going to happen. So what I usually recommend is listening a lot. And when let's say I'm headed to the grocery this afternoon, so yes. this morning I text and say, I am headed to the grocery at about one o'clock. Give me a list and I'll drop a bag on your front doorstep. That sends the message that I'm serious about this. I'm giving you some time to determine what it is you need from the grocery. I'm not, Mm -hmm. hey, I'm at the grocery now. What do you need? That's not helpful. Mm -hmm. And then I'm telling you, I will leave it on your doorstep. You will not have to visit with me. And that's Mm -hmm. important too, because I need help. I don't need obligation. Those are my recommendations to check in frequently. Don't give up. Don't expect a response. And then if you want to help, be specific. Or drop off a gift card to a restaurant. Something that will actually help. Not just the sort of, oh, let me know. Mm -hmm. That's what you feel better. That's not
0: helping. Those are very helpful tips. Thank you. What sort of of end-of-life plans do you think are most important for people to have in place?
1: Another resource I have on my website answers that question. I got that question a lot after the book came out. Okay, Jen, but how do I do it right? On the resource page of my website is a free download called the At Peace Toolkit, a guide to being at peace with end of life. There are three basic components to it. The first one could actually save your life, and that is loading your medical ID into your smartphone, making that accessible even when the phone is locked. That could save your life and it could make your end of life in the case of trauma more comfortable for everyone involved. The second part is your advanced healthcare directives. Very important. We are pretty split in this country on when we are in a certain healthcare situation, do we want every life extending measure or do we want just to be kept comfortable till we die? We're almost at a 50-50 split. There's no demographic correlation in that split, right? Husband and wife could have vastly different ideas of whether they want to be kept alive with every measure or they want to just be comfortable and allow a natural death. So advanced directives are, I just can't even tell you how important they are. And again, you can change your mind at some point. They're not the Magna Carta, but they sure give your loved ones some guidance if and when some of those difficult decisions come up. And then the third part of it is A long list of stuff that you need to get together, will and trust and bank accounts and disposition wishes, you know, what do you want done with your remains? Letters you want to write to people Mm -hmm. to be opened after your death, that sort of thing. So, oh, and the other thing is, and this is in there too, your digital legacy. One of the saddest things as a widow in several widow groups that happens is someone's spouse or partner dies suddenly and they don't have the access code to their smartphone. And you know, each time you put in a wrong access code, the phone gets closer and closer to shutting down forever. And you can't get it. The person has died, which means that the photos and the videos have just become that much more important, you can't get them. I experienced this with my dad, who died last year, where I didn't know the access code to show. Luckily, all he ever used his phone for was. Phone calls, uh-huh. and some other online poker thing, or some silly thing like <laughs> that, right? So I didn't have to worry about the long uh-huh. photos. But any one of us who are younger and more modern, using our phone and the context that are in your phone. So anyway, your digital legacy is more important than you realize. That's another thing to get in order.
0: This is a show about joy. I think of joy as this kind of deep knowledge that all is well. It's not, to me, the same thing as happiness, but it has more to do with peace, safety, wonder, and delight. And most people probably don't think of joy when they're thinking about dying and death or their end-of-life plans. But I wonder if you have found any joy in this journey.
1: Yes. Joy, by the way you define it, certainly, 100%. Mm-hmm. Not by the sort of colloquial sense. I and probably many other people have of the word. Certainly there is a great deal of peace in caring for a person you love up until and beyond their last breath, carrying out their wishes, whether they are the same as yours or not, right? Whether you Mm -hmm. would want that or not. I did that for Bob. There was great peace for him Mm -hmm. in dying, knowing that I was taken care of and that I was taking care of him. And there was great peace for me In knowing that I did that and that I have only to love him and to miss him and to be saddened by his death, I don't have a bunch of hand-wringing kind of regrets or consternation. There is tremendous peace, certainly in terms of safety. It's there, right? That actually exists far less if you do no or little preparation for your end of life for the people you love. So there's a huge amount of safety I had to work on delight, except that I did the old eighth grade, you know, essay thing and looked it up just because, right? (laughs) Like, when was the last time I defined the word delight? And it said in the definition, please greatly. The sound of the word delight doesn't really work for me. But I Uh can't imagine a greater pleasure than to know, to absolutely know in no uncertain terms that you have thoroughly expressed your love for each other up until and beyond the last breath. There's joy by your definition.
0: I think you have to look hard for it in times of loss, but that treasure hunt in and of itself can be life-giving, valuable. Another thing that you've done is that you have allowed your suffering to be turned into good for others. I hope that that is something that brings you maybe not joy, but satisfaction and peace and a sense of meaning, because I think it probably helps a lot of people.
1: Thank you. That is certainly true. I have derived great joy by your definition and the colloquial one out of knowing that opening up about this stuff is helping other people.
0: Well, I believe that this completes our joy for today. Jennifer, thank you so much for speaking with us today. You have so much to offer. And so I want to encourage our listeners to go check out your website. Listeners, Jennifer's website is hospicedoctorswidow.com and it's spelled H-O-S-P-I-C-E-D-R-S-W-I-D-O-W.com. You will find a lot of resources order her book because it is beautiful and wise. Know that we're all going to have opportunities in life to support caregivers, to be caregivers, and to die as well. And we want those journeys to be good and meaningful. Thank you, Jennifer, again, for the resources you provided us today.
1: It is my honor.
0: Listeners, I'm grateful for you too. If you have questions, comments, or suggestions, send an email to me at mvano at org. Please join us again next time because our J-O-Y is not complete without you. is a production of St. Margaret's Episcopal Church in Little Rock, Arkansas. Thanks to Stephen Bano, who composed and performed our theme music, and to Heidi Soule, our producer.